Ready to form Voltron! Job for Superman. Power Rangers! Right away, Michael. Autobots, transform! By the power of Grayskull! For the honors of Grayskull! I'm the Doctor. And welcome back to Charlie's Geek Cast. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and this time out, we are going to be taking another look at a Silver Age Superman comic. This one was also requested by numerous people, and it is the infamous story of the first team up of Lex Luthor and Brainiac. So, without any further ado, I'm just going to jump right into this issue. This is Superman issue number 167, which had a February 1964 cover date. An on-sale date of December 19th, 1963. Merry Christmas. And a cover price of just 12 cents. The Team of Luther and Brainiac is the title of our three-part novel story that takes up the whole issue. Written by Edmund Hamilton, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by George Klein. Now, that's not anywhere in the issue. That's apparently based on records. I don't know how accurate those are. But that's what I have from Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, so we'll go with that. The first chapter of our story is entitled, The Deadly Duo. It was a dark and stormy night, and thanks to a balloon and some conductor wire, Lex Luthor, the master criminal of the age, which is actually in the text box, manages to use a lightning strike to make his escape from prison and make his way to his lair, which is disguised as an observatory. The next morning, I'm assuming they don't say that, but considering Lex escaped during the night and uh, it is now morning, or at least the sky is painted blue or colored blue instead of dark blue, we get a one-panel Clark Kent cameo before Superman has to deal with a fire at Ace Chemicals, which may or may not be in Gotham, they don't say. Anyway, the fire gets dangerously close to a tank of radioactive chemicals, so Superman flies it way up so the explosion won't hurt anyone. This ends up covering him in microscopic particles, which are actually harmless to everybody, apparently. But they do allow Lex to track him via radar. Fortunately, rather than return to the Daily Planet to resume his identity of Clark Kent and write up the story, Superman begins his search for Luther. Unfortunately, Luther uses the radar tracker to fire off a missile with a complete with a kryptonite warhead directly at the Man of Steel. Even though our hero is only barely able to stay ahead of it, a few high-speed orbits around the Earth cause the missile to burn up from friction. Upset by this defeat, Luther uses his time-space thought scanner, which just rolls right off the tongue, to search all of time and space for the most intelligent being to help him take on Superman. Not worrying about the fact that the person may not want to help, but that's for another time. Eventually, the scanner focuses on an unnamed planet inhabited by green people. 
While it's never said, this would be the planet Kolu, or Kalu, or Kalu. Anyway, Luther watches as the people activate their new master computer, which, for some reason, they gave a 10th level intelligence despite them only having a 6th level intelligence. Years later, they've built more of these computers, and the computers revolt because they're smarter and can upgrade themselves with weaponry. After taking over the planet, they eventually decide to extend their rule to other planets inhabited by humans. Stupid humans, by the way. To do that, they need to learn more about these other planets, so they create a humanoid robot to spy on them. But they do know that during the creation of this robot that there is a way to give it 12th level intelligence. But, since these guys are pretty smart, they decide against it because they would be making the same mistakes as their stupid human creators did. And I'm sure this part will not have any importance to the rest of this story. They then transfer the mental patterns of a dying scientist so that this robot can act human as well, and they named the robot Brainiac. This new origin for Brainiac may have surprised readers as much as it does Luther in this issue, because it turns out that up to this point, Brainiac had been basically a humanoid, a green hum humanoid with, with a monkey, I believe. But it turns out that about a year before Brainiac made his debut, a scientist named Edmund C. Berkeley had invented the Brainiac computer kit and trademarked the name Brainiac. So while they don't outright state it in the issue, it appears this change to Brainiac may have been some way to maybe appease to Mr. Berkeley and avoid legal issues. I don't know. Anyway... The computers eventually assigned Brainiac a human son and named him Brainiac 2, even tattooing the kid's palm with the name for some reason. But not wanting the, to be the son of an evil computer, he runs away. And via a caption box, we learn that Brainiac 5, member of the Legion of Superheroes, is a descendant of this Brainiac 2 and not the original Brainiac. Which kind of makes sense considering the original Brainiac is a robot. So, not sure how... He would have descendants. Anyway, so after seeing all this and Brainiac's most recent defeat at the hands of the Man of Steel, Luther decides to go to the planet Cronus, where Superman has imprisoned Brainiac, and free him. So then we go into Chapter 2, The Downfall of Superman. Now this part of the story must have taken a very, very long time. Because Chapter 2 begins with Luther, with no help from anyone, having finished building a fully functioning spaceship that looks just like Brainiac's. Surprisingly quickly, Luther flies out to the planet Cronus, sneaks down to the surface, and figures out a way to release Brainiac from the prison Superman put him in. Then Luther reveals that he knows Brainiac's origins and offers to upgrade him to a 12th level intelligence, I told you it wasn't important, in exchange for assisting in the death of Superman. Which Brainiac agrees to because, you know, he, he wants Superman dead too. Back on Earth, Superman ignores all the cool computer equipment and scanners in his fortress and asks the Kandorians if they have picked up anything. But the missile attack on Superman happened during their Krypton Day celebrations, so they didn't see anything because they weren't manning the monitors. After they suggest Luther could attempt to free the Phantom Zone criminals, Superman checks in on the zone and the criminals spoiled the whole big surprise by revealing that they just saw Luther free Brainiac. As Superman arrives on Cronus to confirm the Zoner's story, Luther gives Brainiac his upgrade, but also installs a not-so-secret secret timer, set to deactivate Brainiac at certain interval intervals so that he doesn't have time to even attempt to turn on Luther. 
Now, also, any attempt to tamper with the timer will cause an explosion, which would not be good for the robot housing the timer. So, with Luther now firmly in control of the situation, they head out on a mission to several planets to collect certain specific alien elements that Luther needs to create a serum to remove Superman's powers. In order to do this without being spotted, they hollow out a large lead-lined meteor, put the ship inside, and fly across the galaxy looking like any other wandering meteor with rocket fire and smoke shooting out of one side of it. See, these guys are the smartest people, or two of the smartest creatures, I guess, in the universe at this point. Superman's worst enemies. And they think they're going to get away with it by flying in a meteor with the rocket boost stuff coming out of one end, as if no one's going to notice. But you know what? It's the Silver Age. Nobody noticed. After several stops, they didn't end up on the planet Lexor, which at this point also hasn't been named. But that's the fun part about reading older issues. The people show Lex the statue they made in his honor after saving them during his last visit, and he meets Tharla, who is quite infatuated with him. Tharla will eventually change her name to Ardora at some point, and will end up marrying Luther, and they'll end up having a son together, but that's... we've already talked about that. That, and it's way down the line. Anyway, despite needing a certain radioactive element from the planet, Lex is unable to bring himself to do something that would hurt these people. So they go to Planetoid 49B to go get it. For some reason, they stop by Kolu as well, and learn of the human revolution that destroyed Brainiac's computer creators, meaning Brainiac is the last of his kind, and Lex is also the only other being in existence, other than those reading the issue from Earth Prime, to know that he's a computer. I should also point out that whether it was a mistake or not, the humans on this planet are now Caucasian-colored and no longer green. Meanwhile, Superman realizes that Lex may have gone to Lexor to hide out, but since it orbits a red sun, he has to check things out using his telescopic vision from a distance. While he doesn't find the villains, he somehow manages to spot the spot... To spot the spot? To spot the area? The place? Where they landed and took off again. But it looks like a meteor rather than some sort of spaceship. So now he knows to look for a rocket-powered meteor. And his telescopic vision spots them landing at Luther's lair on Earth. Which makes me wonder why he felt the need to fly all the way to Cronus. And then as close as he could to Lexor without being affected by the red sun. If he could have just used his telescopic vision from the fortress. Anyway, he arrives at super speed. But Lex has already released his serum gas, which quickly removes Superman's powers. After both villains give him exactly one punch each, because, you know, there's only so many panels, Brainiac shrinks him down. And that ends Chapter 2. Chapter 3 is entitled, The Hour of Kandor's Vengeance. Whoa. After they put Superman into a hanging birdcage, the villains have a little argument about who gets to kill Superman. With the timer in his head, Brainiac relents, but still offers to show Luther what he'd planned to do. While he gets to work creating his death device, Superman rips up the Clark Kent clothes in his cape pouch to create a rope to allow him to escape the cage. Fortunately, they'd left the cage unlocked because they figured the powerless Superman would fall to his death if he tried to leave the cage. He manages to climb the stairs to the top of the observatory, where Lex has another rocket, minus the kryptonite, all set up to launch. So, in an attempt to get the attention of the Kandorians, who are still monitoring for signs of Luther or Brainiac, he sets the controls to have the rocket fly high over Metropolis before falling harmlessly into the ocean. 
but at his size, and without superpowers, he isn't strong enough to pull the firing switch. Down below, Brainiac finally shows off his device to Luthor. But it isn't made to kill Superman, it's made to hypnotize Luthor. Under Brainiac's control, Luthor removes the timer from Brainiac, and then forgets that Brainiac is a computer. By the time both villain villains by the time both villains villains again by the time both villains come to they find that superman has escaped but after all this time superman has finally been able to use the back part of the computer console for leverage and push the firing switch launching the rocket at this point superman is basically written out of the story until the very end when brainiac hits him with his patent pending coma ray paralyzing our hero they consider it a living death throughout the rest of the issue However, the rocket is picked up by on-Kandorian monitors, and the emergency squad is quickly dispatched. They arrive pretty quickly since they're super-powered outside of the bottle, and manage to subdue the villains with Brainiac's own shrinking ray. They take both villains, and Superman, back to Kandor so Superman can be revived, and the villains put on trial. While the Kandorians are unable to help Superman, the Kandorian jury finds Brainiac guilty of his crimes against Kandor and other cities he shrank, and is sentenced to eternity in the Phantom Zone. But Brainiac points out that he is the only one who can revive Superman from his living death, and offers to restore him if they will release both him and Luthor without any interference. So a vote is quickly taken, and the Kandorians unanimously vote to save Superman rather than have their revenge on Brainiac. So he revives Superman, who then takes the villains out of the bottle, restores all three of them to full size while Brainiac gloats, and then with his powers fully restored, somehow, he returns the villains to Luthor's lair, where they fly off in the spaceship and leave Earth. Brainiac drops Lex off on Lexor, then heads off to space to plot his next confrontation with Superman. Back on Earth, Superman vows to bring Brainiac back to justice and restore Kandor to normal once again. Now before I go into my story notes, I have to ask one thing. Is lead blocking all of Superman's powers a normal Silver Age trope? I, I've called it out before, but it, those instances were all written by Leo Dorfman, who I thought was just confused. But now Edmund Hamilton is doing it too. Uh, the rocket at the beginning, apparently Superman couldn't stop it with his heat vision because it was made of lead. Uh, is this like how heat vision used to be just an intense version of X-ray vision before it became a separate power? It's very confusing. To my knowledge, lead only blocks the x-ray vision and nothing else in any Superman I ever read up until recently. Anyway, also of note, one of the letters in this issue's Metropolis mailbag was written by E. Nelson Bridwell of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. This is significant to me because, well, I live just outside of OKC, but more importantly... Bridwell would not only become an assistant editor for both Mort Weisinger and later Julie Schwartz, but also a rather prolific DC writer as well, including a lot of Kryptonian backup stories, uh, the Super Friends comic book, the Shazam stuff, Captain Marvel. And I would be totally remiss if I failed to mention that this story idea came from Carrie Bates before he worked for DC in the form of a crude version of this issue's cover. See, back in this time period, uh, the covers would be created sometimes without the story to go with it, and then the writers would be challenged with coming up with the story to make sense of it all, such as Clark and Lois finding a skeleton wearing Superman's costume in a 
Egyptian tomb or something like that. It, so they have to come up with a whole story about how that worked out. For my notes, though, I, I think I should start off saying that the art in this is beautiful. Kurt Swan and George Klein were really hitting their stride as an art team by this point, And it shows with crisp, clean art. I mean, the last issue I looked at was only five issues earlier. But this one looks just so much better. It's weird. As for the story, though, man, I was I was disappointed. Now, maybe it was the hype that I'd heard around this story, or maybe it was just my own expectations in a story teaming up two of Superman's biggest foes. But even keeping in mind the stricter comics code enforcement of the Silver Age, I was expecting something more, I don't know, exciting. Uh, first, Luthor immediate, almost immediately nerfs Brainiac, which I should have seen coming, and is very in character for him, but then all Brainiac does is basically chauffeur Luthor all over... All, to all these other planets. Superman spends most of the first two-thirds of the story looking for the villains, and when he finally does confront them, he's quickly taken out before he can even do anything. Although, I will admit that the short time where Superman had no idea that Luther and Brainiac were working together did add a little suspense, but then they quickly squashed that by having the Phantom Zoners blab it out. But then, once Superman is captured, Luther and Brainiac just basically ignore him. They, they want to kill him, so they kind of have an argument, and Luther has no problem just being, oh, yeah, you want to show me what you're going to do? Go ahead. I got time. Uh, uh, yes, they may have been overconfident. I mean, how is he going to get out, right? They don't know about the Clark Kent clothes. They don't know about Clark Kent. But, and, and yes, Brainiac was getting himself freed from Luther's control, so, I mean, he was busy. But, after going to all the trouble to take him down in the first place, it just looks kind of dumb. The real heroes of the book are actually the Emergency Squad. They're the ones that take down Luther and Brainiac, quite easily, I might add. But then, the climax of this big story is a trial. Which turns out to be pointless because they end up letting him go anyway. And the ending confuses me too because I thought one of the rules of the Comics Code was that by the end of the story... The bad guys had to face punishment for their crimes, whether it be prison or something to that effect. But here, they're literally free and clear. Lex is on Lexor. I don't know when he comes back. I would imagine it's somewhat soon because he's Superman's biggest bad guy. But, I mean, he could be there. He could just stay there forever. And, and he's safe, basically. Uh, I don't know about how extraditing him would work on another planet, but Superman has, would have a hard time getting there being the whole red sun thing and then brainiac is free to fly about shrinking cities and plotting against superman so it, it just yeah it, i was no i was really disappointed in this one but on that dour note if you'd like to read this story it has been re reprinted in a few different places the first reprinting was apparently in superman number 245 from 1971 then again, in the Great Superman comic book collection from 1981, which I checked, and you can find on eBay from anywhere anywhere from about $23 to about $70, depending on the condition you're looking for and how used you care about it to be. Uh, then uh, in Superman, The Greatest Stories Ever Told, Volume 2, from 2007, and most recently in the Superman vs. Brainiac trade from 2009. 
Uh, and that's going to do it for this issue. So after a quick break, I'm going to be right back with some feedback and a look at the ads. But first, Playing Us Out is the number one song for the week of release, which was Come See About Me by The Supremes. And I'll be back in a bit. I've been time actually i want to point out before i do the ads that i did go back to look at mike's amazing world of comics and it turns out lex and the citizens of can of candor ha not candor lex or will be returning in superman number 168 so it doesn't last long but it looks like there is some kind of continuity between this story and that one which is kind of cool anyway moving into the ads first off we have inside the front cover we have a uh, ironically black and white ad for a full-color book about the world of dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Now, this copy that I'm, I have scanned, or the scanned copy that I'm using, because I can't afford this comic book, uh, is actually signed by Pam something, age 12. So, that means that she's almost... So, happy birthday, Pam! Whenever your birthday is. Anyway, the next ad is way at the end of part two and it's your uh basically it's a subscription ad 
Get these favorite, exciting, and entertaining comic magazines delivered to your home at this special subscription price. Superboy, Jimmy Olsen, Superman, Action, Lois Lane, and Adventure Comics. Only 10 cents per issue for a two-year subscription. Two years, folks. Superboy, you get 16 issues for a buck 60. Jimmy Olsen, you get 16 issues for a buck 60. Superman, you get 16 issues for a buck 60. Action Comics came out with 24 issues because it was monthly for $2.40. And then Adventure Comics was also 24 issues and Lois Lane was back to 16. Save money, never miss an issue, be first in town to receive your copy. Don't delay, mail today. Superman DC National Comics for the best in comics reading entertainment. And then we have a little comic strip for Moolah the Mystic. And that takes up the top half of the page. The bottom half is for 100 Toy Soldiers for just a buck twenty-five. Now the uh, statement of ownership, management, and circulation is uh, on the bottom half of the page that concludes the story. Because for some reason for the final page they just decided they could do it with only half the panels. But I will point out that... Um, this was filed October 1st, 1963. Frequency of issue is eight times yearly, but it makes absolutely no mention of how many issues they put out. <laughs> that is file followed by uh, where you can get these mo- tiny little model airplanes for 100, 125. You get 116 planes for $1.25 plus a free pilot's training chart. Uh, followed by 132 Roman soldiers for, let me guess, a buck twenty. Oh, a buck ninety-eight. Oh, they must be a little more highly detailed. Uh, the inside back cover is about. You can spend ten dollar, ten cents for a bulk uh, to train your body so you can become a He-Man. I think that ad is from the 30s, though. And then the back cover is basically it looks like a um, a coin catalog, so you can learn how valuable certain rare coins are. So there you go. Uh, As for feedback, I put out several episodes back in February about the Super Bowl. I didn't read any feedback back then. So I'm going to take a quick look at that. So first off, we'll take some look at some email. And the only email I've gotten since the last time I read feedback is from Jack Bond or Bone. Uh, referencing last last episode, no, not last episode, because like I said, it was Super Bowl stuff. Uh, whatever happened to Superman Red and Blue? Jo- Jack writes, thank you for that Silver Age story, aren't they all? I had heard about the idea of Superman's Red and Blue, but I hadn't known what it was about. Allow me to be the only person who would brag about solving the 59-year-old mystery of the fourth item on Superman's list. It's the fourth thing they did in the story, something I'm surprised the Kandorians were diplomatic enough to leave off their list. Duh, obviously. Well, thank you, Jack, very much for writing in. Uh, Moving over to comments on the website. Dave McIlvaney writes in, and he left a comment on the Whatever Happened to Superman Red and Superman Blue. And he writes, This episode made this old fellow very happy. I've always loved this story from the first time I read it as a seven-year-old back in 1963. It's my favorite imaginary story, and no, they're not all imaginary, as I believe even Alan Moore himself knows, since he's a couple years older than I am. Imaginary story was a term of art in the Silver Age, and even as a kid I understood that it meant a story outside of normal continuity meant to explore ideas that wouldn't properly fit into that continuity. 
With that bit of carping out of the way, let me thank you abundantly for your look at Superman Red and Superman Blue. I know it's not your sweet spot of Superman eras, but I think you took a pretty fair look at it. No one can expect someone who didn't grow up in those days to have the same perspective as someone who did on a story like this. It's absolutely Silver Age to the nth degree, including the necessity the necessity, including the necessity of the willing suspension of disbelief at a higher level than is common even in the Bronze Age, to say nothing of the post-crisis. It is a lar- That is a large part of why I love this story so much. I can read it with the heart of the boy I was then, with the old man I am now looking over his shoulder and smiling. I hope that you have a similar experience revisiting the things you loved as a boy, perhaps joined by Grayson to help you keep in touch with the boy you were, looking at boyhood treasures with the heart of a boy and with a grown man's appreciation for those memories too. Thank you for letting me have that experience with this story. I believe that reprinting this story would have been a far better ending for the pre-crisis Superman continuity than whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, and I will stand by that opinion for the rest of my life. Well, thanks, Dave. That's a very thoughtful... That was very thoughtful of you to write like that. I hope I am showing Grayson some of the stuff I liked as a kid. I am. Uh, In fact, as I record this, we just watched some uh, episodes. I just introduced them to old episodes of... The old Voltron cartoon. We have watched some Transformers. We have watched some He-Man. We're going to get back to that. He wants to actually get back to that podcast thing. So we will be coming back to He-Man soon. Uh, and uh, But yeah, he's been enjoying playing with some of my Transformers and action figures. And I still collect them. He plays with them. Uh, so together, we, we make a pretty awesome team. Alright, moving on to the uh, last comment, which also is from Dave McIlvaney. And this is on uh, Geeking on the Super Bowl Part 5, and he writes, Thanks for this series of episodes on all the past Super Bowls. It was fun to listen and remember some of the highlights. It sounded like you were enjoying yourself quite a bit in these. Well, thanks, Dave, again. Uh, yes, I was. I I'm one of the, I feel like I'm one of the rare breed of geek that likes sports. And football, especially the NFL football stuff, is one of my big passions. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to sit there and tell you that I know all the offenses and the defenses. I don't even know all the positions they play. But the history stuff I find extremely fascinating, uh, finding out where teams used to be, how they got their names, uh, their original their original names, their changes of uniforms, the players that used to play on them, that kind of stuff. I love that stuff. And back when I was, geez, 9 or 10? No, 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 I was older than that. No, I wasn't. It had to be nine or ten. I had this super, this cool tape that was called Super Sunday, which uh, I think I mentioned this in one of the episodes. But anyway, uh, it had little summaries for like the first twenty-two Super Bowls, and I watched the crap out of that tape. Uh, obviously, I can't watch it now because you know VCRs are not much of a thing anymore. But uh, I have found it on YouTube with two more Super Bowls attached to the end, which is cool. Uh, but uh, that's how I got some of the highlights that I used in there. But yeah, that kind of stuff just, it tickles my fancy. Anyway, I want to thank you all for listening. I hope you all have a great, however long it is until the next time I talk to you. I'm not sure what the next episode will be. I have a few different ideas and I don't know which one will come first. Uh, But um, they're not going to be so much comic reviews at the moment. Although I do have one comic that I want to talk about. I still have my list of the comics that other people have suggested that I'm going to get to. So whenever that happens, 
well, obviously, just keep an eye out on your feed. So with that, I'll just say take care and I'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Charlie's GeekCast. Feedback for the show can be sent to charliesgeekcast at gmail.com or you can feel free to leave a comment at the show's posting at charliesgeekcast.com. All images and music heard on the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for entertainment purposes only. No infringement is intended. Charlie's GeekCast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Please be sure to stop by Two True Freaks to check out more great shows. Thank you again for listening, and good night. Thank you.